hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to tell you about a special surprise we have coming up for you on Monday. Those of you who listened to my interview with Caroline Kepnes will recall that I mentioned that I got my cat from a serial killer. I had a ton of you reaching out wanting to know more about that story. Now, I wrote something about that story a while back, and the phenomenal Catherine Lee McEwen, who is an English actress, screenwriter, and film producer, paired up with Daphne Willis, who is an amazing singer and songwriter, and they recorded what I wrote about that experience, and Daphne composed music for that, and they have very kindly allowed me to share that story on the podcast. So listen out for it as a mid-month bonus episode. It'll be coming up on Monday. It's less than a 15-minute listen, so it won't take you very long, but for those of you who have asked to hear the story, you will hear it. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. We dive in as per usual. Today, just to kick us off, Cece would just like to remind us about an upcoming course she has. 
That's right. I'm offering Putting the Hook in Your Book, How the Right Premise Can Shape and Elevate a Story on the 18th of May at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom. And links are in my bio. So if you want to learn more about what is a hook, the different types of hooks, what's selling when it comes to hooks, common mistakes, tips and tricks, just check out my bio. You'll find the link and you can register there. And if you can't make it live, that's okay because you will get the link with the recording and you'll be able to watch that for 60 days. I hope you enjoy. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. And for our listeners, we've now got a new page on our website called Courses and Events. And whatever we're all separately doing, whether it's Carly, Cece or myself, that may be separate to the podcast, we are putting all the information on that page. And then we post links to where you can go to book for it or to get more information about that. So that's just to make it a bit easier for you to know where to access whatever information you're looking for. Okay, Carly, why don't you kick us off with the first query letter? Dear Carly and the shit, I'm a big fan of the show. I'm hoping this query letter finds you all well and interests you in my completed 84,000 word adult historical fiction thriller titled Isabella Coachella. In third person, very close, it tells a dark Americana story of three characters living in Palm Springs in 1951, all seekers of change. 21-year-old Isabella Maria Rodriguez works as a server at the prestigious Jefferson Golf Club. She's been accepted to go into nursing at UCLA in the fall. She has a secret plan hinged on mastering calculus. Bill Point is a resentful war hero who came back from Europe to a ruined family. Now an assistant golf pro, he's dirt poor and a broken man. He wants to rebuild his family name. Mandy is a 27-year-old housewife married to pure evil and navigating an affair with her tennis coach. Driving into a catina one starry night, Bill comes across Isabella, running on a desert highway straight for his headlights, terrified for her life. A car has been following her. He walks to the car wielding a seven iron and it drives off into the desert night. But for a moment, Bill thinks the driver considered staying. Bill sort of saves Isabella and love blossoms. In truth, he thinks she will save him. A good rebuild starts with a good woman, after all. The car that followed Isabella, they chalk it up as teenage hipsters just trying to scare her. But in her guts, suppressed voices scream at them. They had seen the intent in the car and that things were going to be far from okay. Bill is followed one night by the same car where he is forced to make a decision about committing murder. Things get even more far from okay. Isabella's best friend is raped and murdered. Frank Sinatra is a key witness. Isabella's childhood friend, Handsome Hugo, a homosexual bartender, is falsely charged with the murder. A shit show, I know. But Bill thrives in a shit show. They navigate swinging Palm Springs as truth seekers and among the young beatniks and the new boogie guitar music. They find there is a devil in town, more so a cabal of devils. And one of them is Mandy's husband. Bill must set out to wage war again, and he has a honey badger of a woman as a partner. That woman will not stand down to anyone. Maybe Isabella and Bill can find justice for all the women that loosen the iron bolts before them. Comps. Cornwell's Sharp series, Baldacci's Archer series, Larson's Millennium Trilogy. I work for a mining engineering company in Western Canada. This is my first finished novel. In university, I took a compulsory English 101 course where the professor told me I should pursue writing, but I didn't listen to Dr. Anna. So here stands Johnny with a completed novel in hand, two kids, an incredible wife and teammate. Thanks for making a difference in the lives of aspiring writers. Awesome, Carly. Okay, so that's what we would consider a very voicey query letter. Also, I'm suspecting it's a bit on the long side. So if you could give us word count and then your take on that. 
Yes, well, Johnny wrote the word countdown for me. So Johnny tells me it is 5.06. So Johnny knows that it is over 500 words. And so Johnny knows that it's long. Okay, so yes, definitely Boise. I think trying to go for that retro vibe mostly succeeds, but let's let's break it down. So I love the title, Isabella Coachella. I love the rhyme. I don't know. It has such a vibe to it. And there's so much here that I think is really working, really kind of getting in those those retro vibes here. So the one thing that I always say with multi-POV, and this isn't really multi-POV, it's like a very close third, which we're told in the query and, and shows up in the pages, is that we're explaining these three different characters. But again, we have to explain why these characters intersect and and why this all matters, right? And so we do kind of understand it as we go along, but I made a note here where it says, all Seekers of Change at the end of the first paragraph. That's where I would put that kind of summation, the hook of why these three characters find themselves together. That's the part that I think is really important. Um, and that's what I think we should put up at the top. Otherwise, we're kind of wondering, like, why are these like why are these three characters um, together, essentially? And we have to obviously keep reading to get there, but we have to be interested enough in order to get there, right? So that's really important. There is a little bit of a tendency for this to fall into synopsis-like territory. Um, there is some kind of what I call kind of like weak language, meaning like it says, Bill sort of saves Isabella, right? Like what does sort of mean? <laughs> he does or he doesn't, or if he's indifferent, like sort of is just such a wishy-washy term, which again, sways a little bit into synopsis territory and just kind of needs to be tweaked or reworked. Um, there's another thing, a couple things that I would cut, which when you guys see the pages, either Johnny when he gets these or you guys who donate to the Kofi, you'll be able to see the notes here. You'll be able to see what I think should be should be cut. I'm a little bit confused about why we need Mandy in the query letter because she doesn't really kind of come in until the end, meaning like her husband is kind of a bad guy of sorts. So I really think we need to focus on Isabella and Bill. And if we, again, if we have a third main character later on, it can be mentioned subtly, but I just don't think we need to kind of like block out a little bio paragraph about Mandy. I didn't really think that was necessary. And again, little synopsis things like Frank Sinatra is a key witness period, right? Like really short sentence, are you just trying to name drop Frank Sinatra? Like, how does he fit into the whole scenario here? Um, again, feels like synopsis to me. Really good sense of danger here. Um, and again, really atmospheric and, and so many other things that I that I actually really, really like about it. I do have a problem with the comps. So I think the only one that works is the Archer series. The Sharp series, I believe, mostly takes place in the 1800s. The Millennium Trilogy, Girl with Dragon Tattoo, like, sure, maybe cool like I to me that's just such a like I don't understand how that could possibly be a comp for a number of reasons we talk about on the show meaning it's a film it's a brand it's so much larger than life it's also not even set in the same time period or location or anything like that right so th those are some reasons why I don't think that would work but keep the Archer series I think that one is doable find some more retro 1950s detective thrillery type of comps I, I think that's what what I would focus on so it has a good vibe to it I think I think most of it works but we have we have some retooling to do awesome okay and what was in the opening pages so we start with our timestamp, chapter one, October 9th, 1951, at the Jefferson Club, which is the golf club that is mentioned, five miles east of Palm Springs. So we start by meeting our Isabella character. She is at work. She's looking forward to finishing work. She kind of takes off from work, packs up all of her stuff. We learn about her going to UCLA for nursing, all the little kind of details that we learned in the query letter. 
she kind of sees a man kind of like watching her from the back corner. She's like, you know, not thinking anything of it, obviously, because it probably happens to her all the time. She packs up her things. She tries to take the bus, but then the bus kind of drives by her. She's saying like the bus driver always does that. He's trying to kind of take off and, and get home, but it is quite late at night. So she starts walking. I believe it was uh, a couple miles. Like it was going to take her about a half an hour to get home. Like what was told in the query letter, a car comes at her. She thinks it's going to kind of come after her. She kind of ducks under the freeway. And then our Bill character comes back, uh, as we know, with uh, his golf club and, and scares them away. And, and that's where it ends. So pretty much what we learned in the query letter. Okay. Do you think the author's starting in the right place? Did these opening pages do the heavy lifting we expect them to? So I always feel conflicted about these types of opening pages where it's basically exactly what we learned in the query letter. So I'm like, that's good and bad, right? Because it refreshes our mind about what happens. Sometimes it makes me think that the query letter is focusing too much on the premise and not about what actually happens later in the novel. But overall, I really do like the pages because the the atmosphere and the vibe and the intensity and the tension, like everything is done really, really well. Um, I don't think we start in the exact right place. I have a note here in the second paragraph halfway through about where I think we should start because there's a bit too much of an explanation of like what the golf course looks like. So I, I have a note here to where to start. I think one of the real challenges here is this close third because... In one scene, we're going from being really close to Isabella, right? And we're like starting to bond with her. And then right a, right away with, with a paragraph break, but not like a line break or anything like that. Now we're quickly popping over to this man, the bad guy's head, right? The man in the corner. And then we're popping over to Bill. And then we're going to her. And it's a little bit jarring. And I'm honestly not sure what to make of it. Because I feel like it's ominous with close third. Because we have all the information and it's quite kind of cinematic in its own way. But when we have a close third like that, the reader expects all the answers because there's no reason for us not to have the answers if you're always following wherever the action is. In some ways, it feels like a cop out. And in some ways, I'm just not sure how to do it differently. I don't know. I I do feel like Isabella and Bill feel like our main character. So I don't quite understand why we can't just be in their POVs like third. But you know what I mean? Like not actually like I don't know, following them like that. I think we need some definition between when we're in each person's head. So I found that to be the biggest challenge. But whenever I was like, whenever I was in scene, meaning like, you know, when this car is coming at Isabella and she's like, what am I going to do? I'm fast. I'm going to take off. Like I felt like, you know, my blood pressure rising, you know, I was scared for her. And so I really, I really liked the writing. I really enjoyed it. I, I'm just curious about how this close third is, is really going to work overall. But I, I do think it's quite strong. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Cece, let's go to you. Let's hear your first query letter. Dear Cece, I am directing this letter to you via Books with Hooks because your manuscript wish list includes both thrillers and projects with social justice angles. Your bio also mentioned you are a recovering lawyer, so we have that in common. Bitter Justice is a 90,000-word suspense novel set against the backdrop of the male-dominated legal profession and the racial inequity of the 1980s Alabama justice system. Readers who enjoy a coming-of-age story centered around an unsolved murder, like Where the Crawdads Sink, or the twisted family dynamics portrayed in Sharp Objects, will find both elements in bitter justice. On a sweltering August morning in 1968, Willie Mae Carter boarded the Crosstown bus to the exclusive suburb where she worked looking after five-year-old Samantha Sam or Jess. Just after breakfast, 
The police dragged Willie Mae from the Burgess's kitchen in handcuffs and arrested her for the murder of her husband. Twenty years later, Sam, now a federal prosecutor, visits infamous Tutwiller Women's Prison and discovers Willie Mae's name on the list of death row inmates. Sam's ensuing investigation into Willie Mae's case will expose dangerous secrets in both the Carter and Burgess families and force Sam to reassess her values and risk her life to seek justice for her oldest friend. I'm a veteran lawyer with experience as both a prosecutor and a defense attorney, and now a full-time novelist. The Medievalist was published by an independent press in 2017 and won a Ron Award from Ind Tale magazine. Better Justice is the first in my legal suspense series, which focuses on the adventures of young attorney Sam Burgess. The first two pages of the manuscript follow below. I can be contacted via email at redacted or by cell phone at redacted. I hope to hear from you soon. Sincerely, redacted. Thanks, Cece. Okay, word count and your take on that. This is clocking in at 300 words, which I think is a record of the shortest Titus query letter we've ever had. So great job. Brevity is always appreciated, especially since the writer did a really great job of offering the plot points, the sequence of the plot points in a really tight way. It's just working really well. So excellent, excellent job when it comes to explaining what's happening. So, okay, notes. I think I'll start with the plot paragraph. And my thought here is, is this dual POV? Is this dual timeline? I wasn't sure. And I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking it's single POV, Sam's POV, Sam is a prosecutor. And of course, what happened back when she was a child is essential to the story. But we're not talking about two timelines here. If that is the case, and I don't know because I can't ask the author right now, but if that is the case, then I would tweak the paragraph that starts with, on a sweltering August morning, I would tweak that to center it on the protagonist. So it could be something like, Sam was only five years old when she witnessed her beloved nanny, Willie Mae, being arrested for the murder of her husband in her kitchen. Like, whatever. It, it doesn't have to be that. But it could be something like that because it makes it about Sam. It makes it about Sam witnessing this moment about how this probably, I assume, shaped her her life moving forward so that when we do see Sam as an adult, as a prosecutor, meeting with Willie May again, then we know that this whole story has to do with Sam's journey. Now, again, I don't know, of course, what the POV situation is, but if that's the case, then I would do that. And then I guess the second note, and it's quite quite simple, is you're saying this is the first in the series, right? And as we've talked about before on the podcast... We don't know if that's ever going to happen. We don't mean to be pessimistic, but series are tough. Sometimes they happen. I know someone who debuted with, with a series, so it can happen, but it's not necessarily the most common thing. So I would write this as standalone with series potential if that is true. And it feels like this is true because you're saying that it's going to focus on this young attorney, Sam, right? So I'm assuming like she's going to solve this case and then afterwards we're going to see her solving other cases, I suppose. So just something to think about, but really great job with the brevity and explaining the plot. Thank you, Cece. Okay, opening pages. So we have Sam walking into a prison, women's prison, with Jerry. Sam is a prosecutor. Jerry is a defense attorney. They are there to see an inmate called Lola. There is an exchange with the guard where he asks to see Sam's picture ID. He does not ask the same of Jerry, which Sam notes. We only know that she notes this because she mentions this to Jerry in dialogue. 
the three of them, so Sam, Jerry, and the inmate Lola, are talking in a room, and Jerry's trying to convince Lola, his client, to cooperate with Sam so he can get a reduced sentence. And Sam is telling her, you got really lucky that you're not on death row. You did something really bad. You should do this. And at one point, Lola says, I want to be alone with Jerry. So Sam leaves and Sam feels really relieved that she left. And when she looks at the log, this actually happens in the beginning. When she looks at the log, when she's signing in, she sees Willie May's name. And when she leaves, she thinks of Willie May again. And she thinks to herself, thank God I can get out of this place, this wretched place is how she calls it. And when she thinks of Willie May's name, she thinks of her mom saying, do not mention that woman's name in our house ever again. So that is the memory that comes to her. And then that's, that's how the story ends. Okay, so what was your take on that? So I think my first comment is, I think this is a prologue. I don't know. There's no header. There's no prologue. There's no chapter one. There's nothing. And that's what makes me think it's a prologue because why would there not be a header? Like why would the author not have included chapter one? So I'm thinking this is a sneaky prologue. I don't know. I have no idea. So I'm really, I'd be really curious to know, like, if this is a prologue, is it because we go back in time later? Or is it because we, like, what, why? I, I don't know. This is just a question I had. The author did a really good job at times of, with interiority. And at times, it's like you forgot about interiority completely, which is, which is odd, because usually it's like, well, you have to sprinkle in interiority or you have lots of interiority. So that, I thought that was a little curious. An example of a really good job is when she thinks of Willie May and she thinks of her mom. She thinks of her mom's voice in her head saying, we don't talk about her because that's very believable. And that's an intrusive thought that I think would, would pop up in someone's head if they witnessed something like that when they were five. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And that was also a really good way of showing the emotionality and showing the pressure and showing the, the, the strength of the memory without writing it out. So that was a really awesome thing that the author did here. I did think, however, that certain elements of interiority were missing. So for example, at one point we learned that this is her first time in a woman's prison, which makes sense, but there's no interiority reflecting that. We don't have a single moment where she says, oh, this does not look like the movies, or maybe she's never seen a movie with the women's prison. So maybe it's more like, oh, I had imagined that XYZ would happen, but really it's something else. Um, are the smells different than what she imagined? What, what exactly is is not as she pictured, even if unconsciously. Whenever we are doing something for the first time, we typically have a framework that we work off, even if we're not aware of this framework. It's just how the human brain works. So I'd like to see that sprinkled in. I also wanted to know how she's feeling about the things she's saying, because she is saying really harsh things to Lola, which I understand as a prosecutor is her job. And maybe she agrees with everything she's saying, but there's always a difference uh, between what goes on in her head and what we're the words we're saying. So if she's saying to Lola, you're really lucky you're not on death row because you did something really bad. In her head, is she going, and, and that's so true. And I could also say X, Y, Z. Like, is she going, is she digging even deeper? Or is she going, it's really hard for me to say this, but I have to say it anyway, because this is my job. I think I'd want to know that because I'd want to know where her values are. Death row is a big deal to be mentioning it like that, especially because, you know, we're going to deal with death row later on in the story. So I'd want to know, like, what are her values? Like, what are her beliefs about this? It's a hot button topic. So I think it's important for us to know, like, how her visceral emotions um, are 
Amazing, Cece. Thank you. And remember, we say all the time that there's so much that that opening chapter needs to do. It needs to get you attached to the characters, plant curiosity seeds, move the plot forward, reveal something about character. And interiority is an amazing way to reveal so much about character while still having something happen in scene in the while you're showing rather than telling so it's all those puzzle pieces coming together okay carly will you read us your second query letter dear carly april cal callahan a genetically engineered hyper intelligent teenager works as a medical researcher in the wonderkind project developing cures and vaccines that might save humanity when she discovers her birth mother has died of a disease cal already eradicated It's 2050, humanity has devoured the earth, and now it's fighting back, releasing gas compounds that trigger mutation in the human genome. People are dying young and fast from a swath of mutated diseases. Taken from their birth families at age five, Cal and her wonderkin peers work in a strict military-like institution to reverse this apocalyptic trend. Their finely tuned neuroanatomy requires stability, routine, and shelter from the contamination of the outside world. Cal, rebellious and driven, is a top-performing wonderkin. When she's not working in the lab, she's running a black market trade with the staff swapping life-saving meds for contraband from the outside world, like snippets of popular magazines and pages torn from novels. She works tirelessly to ensure a future for humankind while pushing aside the intrusive thoughts of her earlier life with her loving and tight-knit half-Chinese, half-Irish biological family. This is until she finds her mother's death certificate hidden among her research papers. Cause of death, pneumonia, Huntington's disease. Date of death, two months prior. But Huntington's disease doesn't exist anymore. Cal eradicated it, or so she was told by her supervisor and founder of the Wonderkind Project, Benson. Scrawled next to the cause of death are four words. The resistance needs you. The note sets Cal on a quest to discover the truth of the Wonderkin Project, the state of the outside world, and her place in the chaos of survival. The novel explores intergenerational trauma and its fundamental effects on people's DNA and psyche alongside issues of inequality and corporate greed. Set in Melbourne, Australia, this female-centric, upmarket, speculative novel is Goodwill Hunting meets Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, with elements of the voice and pacing of The Hunger Games. My short stories have appeared in Australia's Mind Food magazine, the Bristol Short Story Prize Anthology, Volume 13, and Five on the Fifth. My dystopian story, These Halsicon Days, was named Mind Food's 2021 Short Story of the Year. Wonderkind is my first novel. Thank you kindly for your time reading this email and considering my request. Kind regards, Chelsea Chong. Awesome, Carly. That sounds super intriguing, but that is a hell of a long query letter. But all the sympathy in the world because you're trying to do world building on top of everything else. So what was your take on that? Yes. Okay. So I actually cut off a little bit of that query letter too. There was a little bit of a preamble kind of explaining a little bit about themselves and what they were trying to do with the novel. So I actually cut that off. So the part that I read was 388 words. And again, I, I trimmed part of it. So which didn't actually need for understanding the query letter itself. I mean, it's a really interesting hook. And it was right off the top, what I had read was was basically the bolded part of the hook. It's really strong. It's really interesting. It's very high stakes. There's a very compelling main character. I think some of the things I'm concerned about are the comps, whether they're dated, whether this is YA, some questions like that, you know, whether this is coming of age, whether it's for adults. I mean, so... Never Let Me Go, I think is a good, solid comp. It's also a great book and one of my favorite books. I talked about that before. But, you know, they said this is a female-centric, upmarket speculative novel, but, like, we're missing comps like The Power and other 
very specific comps that are female centric upmarket speculative novels. You know what I mean? So I think we're just missing a big audience gap there for fans of the power. And, and there were some other books that came out around that time. I think those would be really, really important comps there. So in the Hunger Games, right? Like that's a YA comp. Again, it's really old. It's a brand. It's a TV show or sorry, it's a movie, right? It's like, it's so much larger than life. So that's a really challenging comp for me because then it makes me think, oh, are you pitching this as YA? You know? What, what exactly are you trying to pitch me here? So those are some of my main concerns with the actual positioning of the book. I will say in the preamble that I didn't read, this person said that it is, it's not finished. So they finished 40,000 words of it. So to me, it speaks a little bit to that fact that maybe we're still figuring our way through this book. Maybe we're still figuring our way through the manuscript. It doesn't mean it's not good. I, I think what we have is is quite strong. And, and if we can stick with this hook and keep it pacey, like you said, like the Hunger Games, without saying it's the Hunger Games, I, I think there's a lot of really, really great stuff here. And I think you're going to get a lot of requests. Thank you, Carly. Okay, what was in the opening pages? We have Callahan walking through the prison-like building that she's already described. She's looking at children. They're, she thinks they're, she says they're eight years old. They're working on their PhDs. We're not sure if she is eight years old or the children are just eight years old. She is one of the only ones that remembers the before times, I think, or probably her and people older than her remember the before times. We're not sure if the children, you know, younger than her remember the before times. We were told that it was shave day, meaning like all these children have bald heads. We're not sure why. She talks a little bit about slipping the contraband around and again what we learned in the query letter shots about the lab that she works in and uh yeah that's that's where we end up wonderful okay so what was your take on that okay so we open with kind of learning about everybody else and this is one of those things that i find is a bit of a challenging opening it opens with a bit of dialogue it says it's her look it's callahan one of the children gets up the nerve to shout my name and so she's evaluating like the children in the grass and you know talking about them but we I found, again, I find this challenging because we start with dialogue, first of all. Secondly, we learn, again, about everything else. And I understand we're doing a bit of world building here, but I really wish, if it is going to be dialogue, that it's her dialogue, that she's interacting with somebody through this dialogue, or we're learning a little bit more about her as opposed to the staff, the facility called, is called the Golden Elms. We're just, we're just seeing a lot of everybody else. As we start to work through the pages, we do learn a little bit more about her about talking with the staff and again sharing the contraband with them but I really wish that I learned more about her earlier on it just seems like a missed opportunity and it's not that the writing is bad or anything like that it's not that this can't be successful I just think there's such a bigger opportunity if we were to be able to focus on her that's the big that's the big piece that I feel like we're missing here I think it also is a consequence of this being a partially finished book. It's only 40,000 words and we're, again, still finding our way through it. Maybe once we get, you know, this author finishes the book, they'll be able to see a way that, you know, the beginning can work in a more of a a way that works with the plot or as, again, they start to tweak and, and they figure where it actually begins. This maybe could not be the beginning that ends up being the beginning at all. And again, that's okay as well. So those are just just some things to think about. I also felt like we just met a lot of people. You know, it's like we meet Callahan and she talks about the kids and then she talks about the people that work there. And she talks about her boss. And I'm like, that's a lot of people. Um, again, when I really just want to be focusing on Callahan and establishing a lot more about 
Callahan's role in the book. A smaller note is that I could see comments in the margin, I think from an editor or a friend who is editing for you. So really just, you know, a note to everybody just to make sure you're sending a clean draft so that I don't see the notes. I didn't read the notes because I wanted to kind of read it blindly and, and not be influenced by anybody else's notes. But just as a reminder, everybody clean up those drafts. I know Microsoft Word recently changed itself and now all of those kind of things are, are hidden a little bit in the track changes in the comments and reviewing features, but just do do a last sweep before you send it to us. But I, I think this is a really good hook. And as I said, I think you're going to get a lot of interest for this. It's just where does it begin? And when you finish it, is it's going to be the right place. I'm interested in that. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Cece, let's go to you for the last query letter. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I am an avid bordering on obsessive fan of the shit no one tells you about writing, and I'm seeking representation for my novel, Call You Grace. Like Bianca, I write from a place of rage. And like Carly, I grew up in a rural area steeped in country music. Cece will enjoy the strong yet flawed protagonist and dysfunctional family. Call You Grace is a 63,000 word work of literary slash upmarket fiction, exploring how childhood coping mechanisms haunt and hinder adulthood. Think The Queen's Gambit, if set in the 80s music scene, rather than in the 60s chess world. Sharing themes of My Face in the Light or While Not a Memoir Educated, Call You Grace is told pragmatically and profanely by Willa Martin, alternating between a chronological account of her life and rehab group therapy sessions. Stepfather, Roland, is a tyrant. Her mother has disappeared into a jug of special water, and no one will tell Willa what happened to her real dad. At the age of nine, a seminal moment leaves a literal and figurative chip on her shoulder. She adopts a code of fucklessness, steals Roland's pot crop, and escapes to Toronto, where a friend is in a band. When the singer is arrested for manslaughter, Willa picks up his guitar and secretly begins writing songs. All too briefly, fucklessness floats away. A freak accident changes the way she looks, but not how she looks at life. She recovers physically. But as Willa achieves success, fame, and the love of a good man, she seeks to feel nothing at all. Finally, her mother locks them both in a root cellar in a DIY attempt at redemption and rehabilitation. Willa remembers witnessing her father's murder when she was four and is able to move toward forgiveness of her mother and herself. I am a former Toronto broadcast journalist and speechwriter now living in Bellevue, where my husband and I struggle to get our rescue cats, Frankie and Sammy, to love us back. I belong to several writing groups. My short stories have been published in various anthologies and are available on my blog, wordswiddle.blogspot.com. Call You Grace is my debut novel, and I look forward to sharing and discussing it with you. Best regards, Deborah. Thank you, Cece. Okay, word count and your take on that. So the word count, this is clocking in at 380 words, um, which is a good length. I have a lot of thoughts on this query letter, so... 63,000 words is on the shorter side. Not necessarily a problem, but just something to think about. Don't know if your comps would be also at that length. I don't know. It's just something to think about. It is on the shorter side. And it feels like a lot happens in this novel. So I'm really curious to know how you'd pull it off. 
you're calling this both literary and upmarket, I would choose one, you know, choose the one that more accurately represents your, your novel. Like, is it more language driven or is it more character driven to Carly's great post listeners? If you've not read Carly's post, you should. Carly will tell us later where it is because I obviously do not know how to say these things. Your framing of the hook is passive right now. I'll read it. Exploring how childhood coping mechanisms haunt and hinder adulthood. That is a passive way of framing your hook. It is totally fine for literary because in literary, this happens a lot. But if it's upmarket, you're going to have to activate that hook. So you're going to have to think about it in terms of what happens when and then activate it, activate the story. I don't think you need the told pragmatically and profanely by Willa. Like you just don't need that line. It's just adding stuff that I don't even understand, to be perfectly honest. The beginning of the plot paragraph starts with stepfather, comma, Roland, comma, is a tyrant. That was really confusing to me. So I would just frame it as Willa's stepfather, Roland, is a tyrant. Her mother has disappeared. Like always frame it in the protagonist. I know you mentioned Willa in the previous paragraph. But remember that many agents, they kind of skim the first paragraph and they just go to the plot paragraph, right? So you want to make sure that plot paragraph is tight and concise and reading like pitch copy. So go to the back of books and see how other people did it. I have a really important question. You say at the age of nine, and then all these things happen, right? Including her moving to Toronto and falling in love and witnessing manslaughter or whatever else. I sincerely hope that this does not happen when she is nine. And I'm convinced it doesn't. But please, dear God, right? Like four years later or however many years later, maybe she's really young, but she can't be nine, right? Like maybe she's 16. I don't know how old she'd be, but I'm pretty sure she can't be nine. So I would very much clarify that. The plot paragraph right now is reading like synopsis, you know, especially because you have like the, almost like the ending. Willa remembers witnessing her father's murder and he's able to move on towards forgiveness. Like that almost feels like the end. So I would just rewrite it, rewrite it like pitch copy. Go to the books you love, the books that are similar to this book, read their pitch copy, write it out, actually transcribe it. Okay. So you can get your brain trained on how to do it and then do it with your story. It's going to take you a long time because it's not easy to write pitch copy. I know because I'm always pitching editors, so I do it for my clients' books. It's really hard, but you have to do it. It's something that you can't skip the step. So I also have a question. There's a line that reads, finally, her mother locks them both in a root cellar. Who is both? Is it her and her stepfather? I have no idea. I don't even think we need that line, to be honest. So maybe it doesn't matter. But but yeah, um, thank you for sharing this. Thank you, Cece. I think she means the mom locks Willa and the mom in the root cellar together. Based on her talk of the mothers drinking the special water, I think they both have addiction issues that the mother's trying to save them from. But yes, that that does need to be made more clear. That is, of course, what it is. Now that you're pointing it out. See, but then my poor brain did not understand that. But of course, it's what it is. Okay, probably you don't have to change that. Probably I'm the only human who would not understand. No, no, you need to make those kinds of things clear because you, you can't be certain how people will interpret that. Okay, so in terms of the opening pages, what's in them? What's your take on them? We have chapter one with a timestamp, 1969. And this begins with, this is told in first person, Willa's perspective. And she is essentially talking to the reader. I'm Willa Martin, named after my father, William. You know, when I was X years old, this happened. When I was X years old, this other thing happened. And we move through time through her perspective. We see her asking her mom where her dad is. We see her not ask that question anymore after a scene at the grocery store where her stepfather gives his daughter food, but not her and her brother. And they're hungry, but only her stepsister can, can, can eat food. And then we have a second chapter 
that has another timestamp, and that's 1973. And Will is talking to her mom, and Will is asking her mom, like, why are you with this human? Why are you with this person, my stepfather? And her mom says, do you think we could have this life, this life financially speaking, if it weren't for him? And she knows that this isn't the right answer, but she can't say why. And Diane, Diane is her stepsister, gets a gift on her birthday that changed her life. So she and Diane, they practically share a birthday. They were born not that long apart. She and Diane practically share a birthday, so they both get a gift. Of course, her gift is a child's picture book, and Diane's gift is a a really cool shiny radio. And that gift changes her life because it opens the world up to her. And so that's something that happens at the end. And there's a really interesting detail at the end. Um, They're talking about how someone had cancer in the uterus, and they don't know what uterus is. So they find out, and then they make a pact to protect their uteruses, like her and Diane as children. Awesome, Cece. Okay, what did you think of them? Okay, I want to say that there are many interesting details that I highlighted, and I was like, oh, this is so interesting. It's such an insightful way to look at the world. It's so sharp. It's so specific. It's it's just really cool details, right, that I really liked. And they were woven in in a way that, that was really masterful. I am not sure the story is being framed in a way that is doing it justice. Because right now, everything is being told to us in a way that's not quite piquing the reader's curiosity. The stylistic choice of having her summarize her situation in the beginning, instead of immersing us in scene and having something happening in that moment with the added layer of her interiority, that stylistic choice, I'd reconsider it. It's really risky. Um, There are books that do it. Um, A good example is White Ivy. It starts with almost an omniscient narrator situation that kind of gives us the the overview of Ivy's life before a certain moment where the actual scenes start. So it's not that it can't be done, but it is really hard to do, especially in first person. So if you are set on having that voicey, moving through time narration, I'd consider third person. It's not, again, not that it can't be done, but it just makes it really, really hard the moving through time is reminiscent of, of more like an article, not quite a novel in, in this current format. I would play around with point of view. I would play around with how to start this. Try starting it with a scene and not the scene where she's asking her mom about her stepfather. That's too obvious of a scene. It could be the scene where they are unwrapping presents, for example. It could be another scene. But try to start with a scene and make it more grounded. Take more time to develop the setting and the characters. It's just a thought. Maybe you've already done that. Maybe this is what you want to do with your novel. It's obviously totally your decision, but I don't think that it's it's doing it justice. And as a very minor note, there are way too many characters that start with the letter D. We have David, we have Daryl, we have Diane. I think I would just mix it up a little bit because it does get a little repetitive and harder on the eyes. Awesome. Right. That's the end of today's Books with Hooks. Thank you so much to you both. Let's go to today's guest. Hey guys, it's Carly here. I have been teaching courses for over 10 years. I have taught them at writers workshops. I have taught them at conferences. And one of my favorite ways to teach them honestly is Zoom because I get to reach you guys exactly where you are in your homes, at your computers, um, at any possible time that that works for you. So this one is going to be May 24th, 8 p.m. Eastern. And my next one is called Preparing Your Pitch Package to Literary Agents, from polishing your manuscript to formatting your query. Because listen, this is what I found. Querying writer's biggest fear is the unknown. What should my submission look like? 
How polished should it be? What are agents looking for? How do I avoid looking like a rookie? These are all the questions that you guys are asking me. So this webinar will cover how polished your manuscript should be before submission to agents, how to know your project actually is ready to submit, what type of synopsis to prepare in advance, how to format your query letter, what a nonfiction proposal looks like, etiquette around corresponding with agents, behind the scenes on how agents evaluate queries, and so much more. It's going to be a 90-minute long presentation, and it'll be followed by 30 minutes of Q&A every single question will be answered. And yes, the slides and video replay will be available, but only to those who sign up in advance. So I will see you guys there. It is May 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern. I look forward to interacting with you guys and answering all your questions about how to be ready to submit to agents. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. 
Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, it's Cece. I'm about to introduce today's guest, but before I do, I have a confession. I'm a little nervous. I'm also super excited. And that's because we are interviewing someone who wears two very important hats. As you know, the goal of the podcast is to offer aspiring authors the best tools to make it into this competitive industry. And like I said, today's guest has two very unique perspectives on this. The first is she's a debut author. She wrote a novel called Pineapple Street. The second is she's an acquisitions editor at one of the most important imprints out there. She edits some of the biggest names in the world. Isn't this exciting? I'm super excited. But of course, like I said, also a little nervous. So I'm going to read her bio and then I'm going to welcome her in. But before I do that, wish me good luck, okay? Thank you. Jenny Jackson is vice president and executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf. A graduate of Williams College and the Columbia Publishing Course, she lives in Brooklyn Heights with her family. Pineapple Street is her first novel. So welcome, Jenny. It's awesome to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I know our listeners have sent in lots and lots of questions, and we're so eager to talk about Pineapple Street, your debut. My first question about the book is about developing character. So this novel has three points of view. We get Sasha... Georgiana and Darley, not talking about the prologue and epilogue for now. And so, of course, the reader has access to each interiority through a rotation that's very neat. It's very pleasing. My brain really liked the neatness of it, the structure. And this choice, in my opinion, was really brilliant because it's part of what makes this a relationship driven novel. So, my question is how did you choose these three women as point of view characters? Because the novel has way more people. It could be an ensemble cast. You could have chosen so many other people to include. Did you at any point consider adding a different POV or maybe not adding one of the ones that you ended up including? Tell us about that. So I like to refer to this style of close third person narration, ABC, ABC, as the lazy Susan of narration. You know, those things in a restaurant where you can kind of pass it around, pass it around. And I like it because, as you said, the neatness really appeals to me. When I was writing the book, I did this crazy thing. I found it very motivating, but I also felt like it helped me understand how to structure my writing days where I broke every chapter down. And I said in my first draft, every chapter is going to be from one character's perspective. Every chapter is going to be 4,000 words, and it's going to be comprised of two 2,000 word scenes. That was how the first draft came into being. If you look at it, it is 
you know, it expanded, it contracted, things moved around. That's not how it finally is. But I think that some of what you're sensing in the pleasing neatness of it, thank you for saying that, is probably because it was constructed in a pretty strict fashion. And it was always going to be rotating POV, POV, ABC, ABC, ABC. I always knew you were never going to hear from Darlie twice in a row. Because for me, the satisfaction of rotating point of view is letting the characters' misunderstandings bounce off of one another. And to my mind, when you're writing a family novel, you derive most of your narrative tension from misunderstanding. So it was crucial to me that these characters who love each other eventually and who want for various reasons to have good relationships, the the thing that needed to happen is they needed to be constantly experiencing the same situation and understanding it differently. So the reason that I chose these characters is I wanted an insider, Darlie. And Darlie is my generation, my age-ish. She's a mom of young children. I am also. I wanted an outsider, Sasha. I wanted somebody for whom this moneyed world would seem totally strange and foreign. I'm also a little bit Sasha, you know, I grew up outside of New York. I grew up middle-class in New England. And then I wanted someone from a different generation. So Georgiana is a decade younger than her siblings and Cord and Sasha are about the same age. So she's a decade younger than Sasha. And she is on the sort of Gen Z side of her generation, of the millennial generation. And I really wanted to explore how she would see inherited wealth differently than the other characters. So I wanted an insider, an outsider, and a different generation. And that's why I chose these three characters. That was really awesome. And did at any point you think about adding someone else? Like were you ever tempted to go inside? I don't know, maybe the parents' perspectives or court or someone else? I do not think I could have written from the parents' perspectives. I think Tilda was She's the mother. Tilda was my favorite character to write. And so it's it's hilarious that I didn't want to write from her perspective. But for me, Tilda is somewhat unknowable. And a lot of the comedy comes from her being on her own planet, so out to lunch, so incapable of examining her own wealth and privilege. And so if I had gone inside her head, I just don't know that I would have been able to make her relatable because I think she's so funny and not relatable, you know, and her dialogue was a blast for me to write. I had to like rein myself in and not just spend chapters making Tilda say hilarious stuff because I found her so amusing, but that's not a novel. That's just a crazy long piece of dialogue. I would love to read that though, because Tilda (laughs) is just, she's so entertaining and also how each protagonist perceives her. So there's a quote from from Darlie. Darlie was often amazed at her mother's ability to gloss over awkward situations. It was either incredibly sophisticated or completely psychotic. But in these moments, she's supposed she was grateful for it. And I think that <laughs> you packed in so much social commentary and insight into who Darlie is in that in that you know observation, but also in in of Tilda. Like it's just really interesting. I think too. It's not that we inhabit her interiority because we don't. And I like that she's unknowable. That's a very good way to describe it. But at the same time, because I see so many, so many insights into her from these three different people, I'm always like, 
huh, she contains multitudes, right? Like it's, it's just a very interesting way to observe someone. Well, I think each of these three women would like to connect with Tilda more. I mean, Sasha as the in-law is really seeking her approval in a lot of ways and knows that she doesn't have it, but just doesn't even really know how to go about forging that connection. And then, you know, Georgiana, the youngest, is in some ways the closest to Tilda. And she talks about something that I think might be familiar to to the youngest children out there. You know, birth order is like a real factor in our relationships with our siblings, with who we are, and also with our parents. And when a child is born like much younger than their siblings, a lot of times they have a really different relationship with their parents because they were kind of the last one around. The parents are sort of done parenting and they have a little more of a friendship in some ways with their parents. So Georgiana almost has that with Tilda and they do talk more openly than the other siblings do with her. But at the same time, their relationship is really just stifled by this level of formality that makes it so frustrating when they try and connect. And I really appreciate that. That was that was really well done. What was the most challenging point of view to write? And I guess which was the easiest one of the three? Well, Sasha came to me first. And I think that's probably because on the surface, Sasha and I are the most similar, you know, having having moved to to New York, having these sort of outsider perspectives. Also, you know, for me, Sasha was a way to explore the insanity of this super wealthy world. And so she kind of gets to have a lot of those, would you believe this kind of moments. And so that was pretty easy for me to write. Darley, who is, you know, the oldest sister born into privilege, struggling with her decision to not work anymore. Darlie was the hardest one for me to get into. And it's really interesting the way that I found the key to Darlie. The key to Darlie came when I decided that she was a very serious finance geek with a passion for aviation investment banking, (laughs) which is ridiculous because I am not a finance geek and I do not particularly have a passion for aviation investment banking. But for Darlie to have this kind of sorrow for having given up her professional life, I needed her to have like an, an intense intellectual connection that she has left behind. And, you know, my husband... Uh, lived with this guy. He lived with these two guys when we were first dating in our twenties and they both worked in banking. And one of them did day trade on Sunday mornings. He would day trade JetBlue stock based on their ticketing algorithm. And it, I mean, it was like hilarious because we were 25 and my husband who was my boyfriend at the time. We would be lying on the couch watching Shawshank Redemption for like the 900th time, like eating bagel sandwiches, just being like, you know, slobs on a Sunday. And his roommate would be there like making thousands of dollars, just clicking around on his computer, you know? And so I was, I was always sort of interested in that world. And, and so, but diving into that and researching that and giving Darlie this intellectual passion brought her completely alive for me. What I really like about Darlie is that it's true that she's an insider and it's true that she hasn't examined her privilege because- I think it's fair to say most people who were born into privilege probably don't because you don't examine the things that you're born into. But you did something really, really interesting, which was, yes, she didn't examine it 
in terms of her responsibility to society, but she also didn't examine it in terms of her responsibility to herself because when it came time to have her husband sign the prenup, she was very much like, I'm not going to do that. So I'm totally fine um, for my trust fund to skip a generation and go to my children. But then when her husband, I don't want to give anything away, but something happens and she starts to need money, I suppose, right? Or, or at least worry about money. That's the first time that she has to confront her privilege in a way that I, I think this two-pronged approach, right, of, of, of ensuring that she wasn't just an unexamined person living a life of privilege. And I don't say just in an insensitive way. I just mean you could have written her in a way that would have made her seem really superficial and and quite unlikable but actually she's the easiest one to like because she's so kind and she's so lovely and you see that her lack of examination isn't coming from a place of selfishness it's coming from a place of truly I never looked well I think there are going to be some moments that strike readers as a little strange about Darley because in some ways, Darley has looked at her privilege as a sort of burden. And I get that that is really unappealing when we live in, you know, an age of such extreme income inequality. And when it is so clear that being unemployed, that not having health insurance, that all those things are just immeasurably worse than having too much money. But there are moments when Darley reflects on how having been born with privilege has closed her off because she has had friends use her. She had a college roommate say she needed money for her mother's health care. And it turned out the girl like had a Coke problem and just stole from her. She has felt the complications that, that her money has caused her and it's made her kind of put up a protective shield. And I understand that in some ways, poor little rich girl, you know, like that's just not the worst problem in the world. But on the other hand, as she is navigating marriage and trying to make a connection with Sasha or trying to open, you know, her heart to new members of the family, that's just a lot of baggage that she's carrying around with her. And I'm going to take the opportunity to read another line, beautiful line. At the podcast, we call these beautiful lines pause pebbles because they're little pebbles that you collect after reading a book and that they give you pause in the best way because you pause to reread them, to highlight them. There was a difference between sharing your good fortune and being taken advantage of and sometimes discerning the difference could break your heart. And I thought that was such an interesting way to frame it because I completely agree. Poor little rich girl, sure. But at the same time, we all have hearts. Every heart can break. And the choice of, of, of framing it as in discerning the difference could break your heart. Examining that, you know, it, it says so much about why she didn't want to examine her wealth or perhaps couldn't because if she did, it, it could potentially break her heart all the time. And I just felt for her so much. I, I felt for all these characters. And I think in part it's because you did such a good job of developing their backstory. There's very little flashback in this novel. Listeners, whatever we tell you not to include lots of flashbacks, go read Pineapple Street and see how Jenny did it. But when you did choose to, you know, zoom into moments that had happened in the past, they were so revealing. They they contained so much information that explained you know, how this person became became who they are now. And so I guess my question is, how did you do that backstory work? Like, do you have a notebook with backstory? Did you just include the scenes and then delete them? I'm so curious to hear about your process. You know, I did end up having a bit of a backstory problem with Sasha 
where I, I fell so in love with Sasha's backstory. And early in the novel, you can see that it, that she does have her romantic history with her high school boyfriend, Mullen, and some things that happened that made her have to break up with Mullen and that made that an awful breakup and that made her then resentful of his place in her family. But the problem is, is that I fell so in love with telling my backstory that I wasn't moving Sasha's front story forward enough in the plot. And that was something I had to do a lot of work on in revision. And so, I mean, that's great advice to listeners that if you fall too in love with your backstory, you're gonna, you're gonna get stuck moving backwards instead of forward. So that was a learning thing for me. But on the other hand, I just kind of feel like, yes, sometimes you have to write it to know it and it doesn't end up in the book. Sometimes you maybe don't even have to write the whole thing, but you have to know what that backstory is just for yourself to understand why they are the way they are. I think that with Darley, it was easier to just kind of do that backstory in a few little sweeps, but Sasha's required more storytelling. And then interestingly, I don't think Georgiana has a ton of backstory. And some of that is because she's the youngest. She's the one who changes the very most over the course of the novel. And Georgiana is struggling more in some ways with her shame over her innocence, which is sort of funny, but she is just so embarrassed at how little she knows about the world. You know, she comes to be embarrassed about how little she knows about the world. So for her, her struggle is less trying to overcome her past and meld it with her present. Hers is really trying to figure out who she wants to be. Yeah. And the different lives she could have because she has, again, listeners, we don't want to give anything away, but she has a relationship that's complicated and we'll, we'll leave it at that. And there's a lot of drama there. It was very juicy to read. And I think that, you know, if perhaps if she had been the eldest in her family, her, her perception of herself would have been different, but she does think of herself as innocent because she's the baby. So it's in comparison. We live life in comparison, whether we're aware of it or not. And the fact that she's the baby and she has all these people who are older, her brother, her sister, her parents, her sister-in-law, and obviously her her classmate as well. There's a whole bunch of, there's lots of drama people, people, lots of drama in this book in the best <laughs> way. So well, I really liked with Georgiana, I liked watching the scales fall from her eyes one at a time, you know? And for me, it was fun because Georgiana wants to be a good person. And she thinks at the beginning of the novel that working in a nonprofit just means that she's a good person. And then fortunately or unfortunately, the work that she does begins to make her realize how little she knows about the world. And then as you alluded to, she makes a pretty bad mistake and has to amend for it. And so it's like an evolution, right? But it's fun. I think I enjoyed the idea of like juxtaposing her privilege with her work world where she was working with people in developing countries with people who literally didn't have access to clean drinking water or sanitary products, you know, like so that we can just kind of have the whole scope there in her world in one place. Let's talk about structure, specifically your decision to bookend this novel with a prologue and an epilogue, both told through Curtis McCoy's point of view. Now, Curtis is not a protagonist in this, as we know. At the start of the novel, this decision allows the reader to be introduced to the family through the perspective of a non-family member. Someone totally outside and someone who's not invested at all. He's just observing. They're in a coffee shop. 
And then similarly, at the end, it allows the story to be wrapped up, I guess, in a more bird's eye, neat sort of way. I thought it was really, really interesting that you did that. And I'll be using your novel as a really good example of how structure can elevate point of view, right? Like that, that decision. Was it always the case? Was that something you did in edits? Like, tell us about making that choice, because now I'm so curious. I love this question. And it may or may not surprise you that Curtis was the very last thing that I wrote. So in my original draft, there was no prelude and there was no epilogue. And the idea for this prelude really came from an author that I work with at Knopf Doubleday. I edit Kevin Kwan and the Crazy Rich Asians books. And at the very beginning of Crazy Rich Asians, there is that amazing scene where the family goes to this London hotel where they encounter a racist bellman who turns them away out into the rain. And then they come back and they buy the hotel and fire him. And it's this kind of, we always called it like the Hiya moment to start the book because it's what it's a way to use a prologue or a prelude to set the stakes and to deliver in a comic and punchy fashion what sort of your thesis of the novel is going to be. You know, for Kevin Kwan, what he was saying in that prelude is this is a book about rich Asians who may face racism and are upending our understanding of wealth and culture. And with mine, what I was trying to do in the prelude is to say, this is a comic novel about privilege and about how we are both relatable and unrelatable when it comes to money. So at the podcast, we have a segment called Books with Hooks. And prologues are a big, you know, they're kind of controversial because sometimes they work and they work really well. And sometimes we're like, you got to cut the prologue. And a lot of people try to pass off prologues as something else. We call them sneaky prologues. And some people do what you did, Jenny. They call them preludes. Still a prologue. A prelude. <laughs> <laughs> Still a prologue, just saying. I think it was, I forget now, I think it was the ballerinas that had some other word. It wasn't even prelude. It was some other word. And then I was like, mm, sneaky prologue I see (laughs) it can it can really feel like cheating right because so I one that's very common is when authors set a scene from the distant past in italics or the other really common one is they take a scene from what's going to be like the near climax of the novel late in the book, they smack that up front. And that's sort of, I mean, it can be very effective because it can be a way of saying there's going to be a murder or, you know, it's like, this is how high the stakes are going to get. It's sort of cheating also, because it's saying like, bear with me for 200 pages as I may or may not entertain you enough because I promise you this thing is going to happen, you know? And I mean, it can be quite cheaty. (laughs) It it can, but when it works, it works. Like it works here. And the trick, the, the, the litmus test, if you will, is always, if you remove the prologue, is chapter one also compelling, also unputdownable? Is it also hooking you? And then if you add the prologue, is it still doing all that as well? But then there's an elevation of some sort. And there is here because I, you know, we start with Sasha. And if I had had only Sasha's, first of all, I would have been way more connected to Sasha as opposed to the other two. In, in Not in a good way, in a Sasha's actually the protagonist sort of way. This kind of leveled the playing field, I feel. 
And also it kind of made me curious about the family dynamics. It allowed me to kind of be Curtis at that coffee shop, you know, because I could also be like, ooh, I'm going to listen in and get all the good. I don't know. I thought it was, I'm biased. I like it. Well, I think that, I think that one of the interesting things is that I wanted the book to be both a comedy, but also thought-provoking and a critique on, you know, inherited wealth. But the things that make it a critique don't really come into the action for a little while in the novel. And I I wanted readers to know right away. And so it is, it can be a really good way to make sure that people understand the stakes. Okay, so I want to talk about humor. A key part of writing relationships is humor because I think that intersection between it's a little funny because it's sad or it's sad because it's funny. Like that intersection of funny and sad. It's just so, it's what makes us human. It's what bonds us. It's so important. And also some, some that are actually like a little heartbreaking if you think about it, but I get to laugh because the character's laughing about it. So the fact, you know, there's a reference in, in Georgiana's point of view, when she says that when she got bangs as a teenager, her mom made her wear a hat in her presence until they grew out. Like I laughed because I got to laugh because Georgiana was laughing. But if you think about it, it's like, well, that's mean. Um, oh, mean. <laughs> so I can only imagine that to a degree, this, some of these must be based on real life events. Tell us about that. And how do you mine life for these sharp and revelatory details? Oh, well, so many of these are real. So the story about the the home, the pool house that was featured in an adult film actually happened to a friend of my sister-in-law. They were on vacation and they were at a hotel and they rented an adult film. And as they watched, they were like, oh my God, this is our house. And they realized that... <laughs> that their um, landscaper had been using their pool house for um, adult film sets. Good stuff. Okay. <laughs> and so wait, did they also, because I don't remember what the, the line is. I was trying to look it up, but they, d- they dumped enough chlorine or something to kill everything in the pool. Like, is that what happened? Like, I don't even do- know. I don't know. I just assumed that like someone like Tilda would basically have all the furniture like thrown away, you know, whereas a normal person would be like, wow, I guess we'll Febreze it. Like, <laughs> Okay, so see, listeners, this is the secret. You get the anecdote, but then you imagine. You imagine further, right? Like Jenny imagined the whole scene in the pool. You're going to see there's chlorine. There's a really funny reference. So <laughs> this is the secret. I love it. Okay, so editing process. You are one of the most successful acquisitions editors of our time. Don't be modest. You're making me a modest face. It's true. Thank you. You've acquired and you've edited so many of the authors we rave about, including Emily St. John Mandel, Gabrielle Zevin, J. Courtney Sullivan, Kevin Kwan. One of my top 10 novels of all time, I believe, is your novel, The Misfortune of Marion Palm. I am obsessed with that book. Top 10 of all time. Obsessed. I've read it. I don't even know how many times. So like, okay, how did that experience inform your experience as an author? I imagine it would make certain things easier or at least more familiar. But at the same time, I imagine it made some things even more challenging. Am I right? Like what? Like, how was that? Well, I think that I have unintentionally basically been in an MFA program for 20 years where instead of paying for it, they were paying me because I do feel like I have been studying the nuts and bolts of my writers and their work for a long time. You know, 
J. Courtney Sullivan with Commencement was four character point of view. Maine was four character point of view. Friends and Strangers is two person point of view, but Courtney always writes in rotating POV. And I very much learned that from her. Kevin Kwan taught me so much in terms of how a sense of place can almost become a character in a book, but how you don't need to be absolutely faithful to a place to make it work for you. You know, you can kind of pump up the volume. Like it was really funny. I went to Shanghai with my husband a couple of years ago and Kevin gave me some tips, but in between the places where Kevin had told me to go, the city was not at all the place that Kevin had drawn in his second novel. And afterwards I was like, you know, Kevin, Shanghai was amazing, but it was a, there were some like pretty gritty corners and it wasn't the like slick glossy place of your books. And he's like, Jenny, none of the places are, Singapore <laughs> is not like I said, it. you know, it's like every single place that he writes about, he amps up the volume. And so I very much did that with Brooklyn Heights in my book. You know, I think if you read Pineapple Street, you could very well think that it was a neighborhood full of billionaires swanning around from tennis to coffee shop to, you know, school fundraiser. But honestly, there we go to the same great, like terrible grocery store that everybody goes to. And there are, you know, like stinky little stores where you buy your newspaper and there's, you know, garbage on the garbage day. And it's, I mean, it's just like a very normal neighborhood that I just learned from Kevin how to pump up the volume on. And then I really learned from Catherine Heine, Single Carefree Mellow, Standard Deviation, Early Morning Riser. Catherine Heine is one of my favorite writers to work with. She's so funny, but the way she builds her jokes is through character. So what she does is she really lets you get to know a character builds out a scene and then has them say the exact last thing you would ever expect them to say. And you just, you just scream laughing. So I feel like I learned a lot from Catherine about building character-based jokes. So that made it in some ways a lot easier because I just felt like, oh, great. I already kind of have like some templates for how to go about doing what I want to do. And then I really kept certain readers in mind as I wrote. And I know that's very common. And I wonder how much you've talked about that on your podcast, but the way that a writer can sort of have a perfect reader in mind as they write. And I published Jennifer Close, who is so funny. And she wrote Marrying the Catch-Ups and the Hopefuls and Girls in White Dresses. And I think in some ways I, I thought of her as an ideal reader. I thought of Catherine Heine as an ideal reader. And then I thought sort of of specific friends also as ideal readers, but having those sort of writer North stars in mind as you're writing can help you crystallize your voice and kind of have some consistency as you're writing. Absolutely. So I got to interview Jennifer for our podcast and it was like peak fangirl moment for me because like obviously the interview was about marrying the ketchups, which I loved, but I've been a huge Jennifer Close fan for, I don't even know, since since she debuted. And it's, this is such a cool thing. Was there anything about the process that made it harder? Like, would you, I mean, when you got your, your editorial letter, did you get an editorial letter? I oh my gosh. Like yeah. And I, you know, <laughs> Your I'm face so, is making me laugh. <laughs> I'm so ashamed to admit it, but I, I hate revision, which is ridiculous. Like literally it is my job. It has been my job for 20 years to tell authors how to rewrite their books. And I hated it. I don't know now whether when writers say they love revision, if they're lying or if they just like understand something that I don't, 
I felt, I felt terrified that I was going to mess it up. I felt like I didn't quite know how to access the voice again once I had put it down for a couple of months. And I also like hated killing my darlings. Like, you know, there were certain jokes that my editors were like, yeah, I don't get this. Yeah, it's not funny. Nope, it's not working. <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, like it was so hard for me to let go of some of those jokes. So I found, I found the editorial incredibly difficult. I think I had a huge advantage in that I knew my editors by reputation. And I actually had even known Pam Dorman. We'd had lunch once before I chatted with her some, so I actually even knew her before, which is a major industry advantage, but more important was like, I really respected them. And I think that if I think that respecting, you don't have to do everything your editor says, like for God's sake, please don't, you know, but I did take 90% of their suggestions and the vast majority of the time it's because I genuinely saw that it was making it better. But on occasion, it's like all my British editor, my Canadian editor, and my US editor were telling me something wasn't working and I felt semi-married to it. But like when three geniuses are telling you to do something different, like you just get with the program and do something different, you know? And so I think that like having a lot of respect for your early readers is really helpful. Absolutely. Especially because everyone's invested in this story. I mean, you know this, right? Like you were, you, you're, you're on the other side usually. So you totally get it. Okay. So if you could magically make one thing known to all aspiring writers out there, what would it be? I'm asking you this question because most of our listeners want to break in. They want to make it in this market. I'm saying most because some have already done it. <laughs> and, you know, but everyone here is serious about their career. This is not a hobby for them. This is a career. They want this. And the reality is that publishing is a buyer's market. You know, I, I remember once asking, I believe it was Sarah Canton from St. Martin's, how many, how many submissions she got a year and how many books she published a year. And I do not remember the numbers, but it was something like 712. Yeah. It's um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously something that if you, if you go by the numbers alone, you feel, wow, like this is really, really hard, which is true of most creative industries. And so knowledge is power. And we like to impart knowledge on the podcast. If you can magically make them know something, anything, anything, whatever it was, what would it be? Okay. Well, I'm going to cheat and do two things, but so the, the first one is for the writers who have not yet either finished or published a book. And that piece of advice is that I think in America and even in our publishing culture, we get too hung up on early success, on bright young things, on 40 under 40 or the best under 25 or whatever. And you mean, I've had a career for 20 years. I'm 43. You know, Bonnie Garmus, who's number one on the bestseller list right now is, I think she's in her 60s. Don't think that there's any reason that it's not going to happen just because it hasn't already happened. Like that's not at all a thing. Like I am so glad that I wrote my first book in my forties because I know it's a better book than I would have written in my twenties. For me, I'm, I'm thrilled that this happened halfway through my career. So that's my first piece of advice is that if, if you're at all worried about it should have happened sooner or it has to happen now, get over that. It doesn't matter. You can do this whenever you want to do it. And then the second piece of advice is one that Chris Bajalian gave me. And this is advice that maybe it's funny for me to give someone who's already published a book because I've only published one and maybe you're right there with me. Maybe you've published three and you're way ahead of me, but Chris Bajalian has written about 22 novels and I've edited maybe half of, and he's a genius, wonderful person. 
said, every book tries to kill itself at least once. And that was definitely true with Pineapple Street. I hit a point where I was like, oh my God, the book doesn't work. I broke it and it doesn't work. And well, that was nice. I'm just never going to publish a book. And I really like had to pull myself up and pull it together. But just somehow that little piece of advice that Chris gave me stuck in the back of my head and made me not give up that every single book of the 22 that he's written. And I think like 20 of them have been New York times bestsellers. They have all gotten to a point where he was like, oh my God, I think this book just killed itself. And he like, you know, performed book CPR. So if you right now are stuck, you know, get unstuck. Julia Glass wrote half of three Junes, put it down for a decade, picked it back up and won the national book award. So like you may have some wounded books lying by the side of the road. You can, you can resuscitate them. They're just don't count on them being down and out. I love this so much. And now everyone has to listen to this part over and over again. Oh my gosh. I love this. Okay. This next question comes from one of our listeners. That was a brilliant question. Is there a fictional family you'd like to join? Even if just for like a year, it doesn't have to be permanent TV books. Cause this book is about family. And I thought, Hmm, maybe Jenny has a family she'd like to observe up close. Yeah. I mean, like, cheesy as it is, like I probably would just like to join. I'm either going to do This is hilarious. I'm either going to join the family from Pride and Prejudice, or I'm going to join the modern day version of it from Curtis Sittenfeld's Eligible, which is one of my favorite takes on that much riffed on novel. I'm obviously going to be Elizabeth Bennett, obviously. Of course, you're going to join. That's how you're going to be. Just be the cool one. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So what's something about you that we can't Google? Oh, probably the fact that I was captain of my high school basketball team, which is amazing because I'm five foot three. What? Yeah, we were really bad. I was like the least (laughs) bad in an horribly bad basketball team. So me being captain of the basketball team speaks only how wretched my whole school was at basketball. Oh my gosh. I love this. Okay. Last question. Recommend us a book. It can be a book that you read and loved or one that you're excited about on your to be read list or, or anything else. And if you want to cheat Jennifer Close, when I asked her this question, she was like, sure, here are five books. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That's pretty, that's pretty hard to pass up. All right. I'm going to recommend one that I didn't work on and one that I did. So I'm going to recommend Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. I did not work on that book. Meg Mason is so beloved in the UK and she's been kind of a sleeper hit here. Sorrow and Bliss is what I like to call a chocolate pretzel novel because it does exactly that thing that you were talking about earlier in the podcast where it marries sadness and humor and gives you that... I don't know what's coming up my throat and it's either a laugh or a sob kind of feeling. Sorrow and Bliss is just one of the most special books about love and family and marriage and depression. And it's just so good. And then and I'm, I'm just going to recommend two British books, I guess. The other one, which I did work on is Dolly Alderton's Ghosts. And this is a novel about a woman who falls in love and then the guy just stops texting her back. He's not dead. He's not injured. He just ghosts her. And Dolly is such a fabulous writer. And I've just started editing her second novel, which will be out in about a year. So everyone should read Ghosts to get ready for Dolly's second novel. 
Thank you. I've read Ghosts, but I have not read Sorrow and Bliss, and now I will. I just want to tell all our listeners to go buy Pineapple Street, Jenny's debut. This is, first of all, it's a very fun novel to read, but this is also a masterclass in writing interiority, writing point of view, writing structure, writing humor, for especially for listeners who have been told, oh, you're writing a quiet novel. This is a challenge. There's so many ways to pack insight and intelligence and plot without it seeming like you're actually moving the plot forward in a way that relies on a character's emotionality and interiority. And you can learn so much from this book. I'm a big believer that at the heart of every brilliant story is a conflict between love and trust. And the conflict here, what you did was so amazing in large part because they were at a conflict, yes, with each other, but also with themselves. Every single, every single person here, every single person. And that's really hard to do. So thank you for writing this really beautiful novel. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for such a wonderful conversation. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.